Thank you, Alessi. I'm sorry I cleared my throat while you were reading that. I really didn't mean it. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Frank. If you are new here, I'm the uh, one of the pastors here and the usually the guy that you're going to see up here, although we have other uh, guys that do this as well, but um, probably 40 times a year you're going to see me. Uh, up here, and we, we uh, want to welcome you. We are glad that you are here. Uh, we have been uh, working our way through the book of Romans, so if you would turn to Romans chapter 3, we're in our 13th week of this series. Uh, don't worry, every week I won't tell you what week number it is. I'm, I'm not quite that type A, but I just happen to know this week it's the 13th week. And look, at, look we're all the way to chapter 3. I think that's awesome. We're just flying through this dog now. This is really good. Hey, listen, a uh, quick reminder. Uh, I want to mention this. In, in February, uh, we, uh, we believe that everybody should belong to a community outside of just Sunday morning. And so we have these things called redemption communities. And so we, we began to think that if, if we think that's a good idea for adults, maybe it would be a good idea for students as well. And so in, in February, we formed a, a student RC, a, a student redemption community. It's led by JP and Carrie Tanner and by Stephanie Shoemate and by David Massey. Uh, Stephanie is the operations manager here. Uh, JP and Carrie are just people who are interested in, in working with students. And David's a, a student at, at Phoenix Seminary. And uh, they were meeting every other week. Uh, for the rest of the school year, and it, it, was, it was terrific. A few times they met in our home, and it was wonderful. We, have, we happened to have a, a high school daughter, and it was terrific. Uh, and I kind of thought they would take the summer off, but instead they decided to not only keep going during the summer, but they're going every week during the summer. And um, it's been amazing what God has done in that RC. They meet every Thursday night, and they're doing it here at the church, and it's been growing during the summer. It's been fabulous. Uh, and this last week was especially fun. Apparently, they went to a Diamondback game uh, Friday night. It was the one where they won against uh, Cincinnati. So we need to get you guys back to the games a little bit. But uh, if you have a junior high or senior high student in your house, or you are a junior high or, or senior high student, and you're looking for a community to get involved in, you should contact Stephanie or, or JP or somebody, and we'd be glad to help you with that. So Romans chapter 3, the first eight verses this morning. It's interesting to me. There's a word that, that Scripture uses all the time uh, to describe God, and it's the word judge. And the word is used again in this passage uh, this morning. It's been used several times, and it's used as both a noun and a verb. So God is judge, and God judges. And, and because He's God, uh, He does that perfectly. His judgment is perfect every time, and, and it's perfect not just in the content of what God says, it's not just in, in judging something and, 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 and he gets it right, but his judgments are also perfect when it comes to his timing as well. So the timing of his judgments when he decides to do something is also perfect. Very often we get impatient about things uh, that God is or isn't doing and, and we question his timing. Very often we question him in regard to uh, what he's judging or what he's not judging at, at a particular time. Uh, but he is the perfect judge. But the interesting thing about, about this whole discussion and one of the things that, that Paul is dealing with in this passage this morning is that we live in a time when really uh, human beings have decided that, that we're going to put God on trial and we're going to be the judges. That's essentially the way we look at God. We have decided that we're going to be the judges and we're going to put God on trial. 
And, and, and my question about that, although I used to do this myself quite frequently because I thought it was the right and just thing to do, after all, I, I should be able to question these things. But, but now the question I have is, are we really that trustworthy to be able to put God on trial? Are we really that smart? Are we really that perfect? When we start a sentence with the words, I feel, and then what comes after those words is some indictment of God, some condemnation of God, some way of putting God into a corner or in a box, do we really have all the information that God has at His fingertips? Are we really prepared to do that? Well, this is the attitude that Paul deals with pretty much in these eight verses at the beginning of chapter 3 of Romans. In other words, Paul's dealing with the same thing 2,000 years ago. So, once again, I submit to you, humans have not changed for thousands of years. We're essentially the same. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes repeatedly, there is nothing new under the sun. We might have better technology with which to express ourselves today we might do it differently but essentially we're doing the same thing we're asking the same questions we're bringing up the same objections and we're trying to put God in the same box that we always have and I want to say that I don't want to leave that there just right away I want to say I understand why we do this human beings can look around and it's pretty obvious there's something wrong in the world right there's something flawed with the world the way we speak to each other the acts of violence that we commit against each other, the betrayal that we have, the question of trust and relationship that we're constantly trying to figure out and deal with, whether or not our employers are being fair with us or whether or not our employees are being fair with the employers, all of these questions, uh, the, the mess that government seems to be in. I mean, we look around. Uh, I was reading a couple of weeks ago for, for another message somewhere else, and there's a historian who, who claims that over the last 3,000 years, the the, the, the human race has known less than 100 years without war. That alone should tell us that there's something wrong with us and there's something wrong with the world. And so that leads to questions. That makes sense that we would start to ask questions. Here's the problem. We don't like the answers that God gives us. We hear the answers that God gives us. We look at scriptures and very often we go, Okay, there must be some other explanation, something that doesn't indict me, something that doesn't place me in the middle of the blame and in the middle of the fault, something else that's easier to hear, something else that I could really live with more comfortably than what God has to say. That's the challenge. We have the questions and that's understandable. We need to be willing more willing to listen to God. And Paul's dealing with that today. It's, it's the saying, and this saying has been attributed to many different authors over the years. I'm going to say Luther said it. It's the saying Luther once used. It, he, he said, you know, God created us in, him, in His image and we've been returning the favor ever since. We want to remake God into something that's acceptable to us after He's the one who created us. A couple weeks ago, Sean mentioned that uh, really famous sermon that Edwards preached a couple hundred years ago, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, if that was preached today, it might be titled this, God in the Hands of, an, of Angry Sinners. And that's kind of the way we look at it. And that, that is what Paul is looking at today. So, we have spent the last 
10 weeks going through what I call the you stink section of the book of Romans. That's from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through Romans chapter 3 verse 20. There is cause to start to prepare the celebration today. We have only two more weeks in the you stink section of Romans. Aren't you excited? Today and next week and then that's it. And then we get to talk about the gospel first and foremost again instead of me making sure that you know it as we go along in the you stink section. Today we're going to look at those first eight verses. In chapter 3, it's kind of a digression. It's Paul dealing with some questions and objections that he knows he's going to get in the midst of him explaining to us that the human condition is truly flawed and we are lost without Christ. And then next week, verses 9 through 20, that is Paul's closing argument. He's a prosecuting attorney presenting his case for what's wrong with the human race that we are sinners separated from God by our sin and that we desperately need Jesus Christ. He presents the closing argument for his case next week. And if you think he's been ugly in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it gets even uglier next week. But he wants to make his case and he wants to make sure he closes every loophole. And the eight verses we look at today, uh, they are also Paul closing every last possible loophole that we might be able to come up with to be able to find some excuse or some exception as to why we are going to be justified before God apart from Jesus Christ that somehow we're good enough. Now, normally the way I work a message is we have the section where we go through the scripture and then we do a lot of application. At the end, we have different points. But what I'm going to do today is we're just going to work right through the passage and do the application as we go. So just right through the verses, we'll take them two at a time and we'll tell the, kind of tell Paul's story, expand on Paul's story as we go. So look at those first two verses. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value, what is the value of circumcision? Now I'll explain why he comes up with that rhetorical question in just a minute. He answers and he says, well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So here's what's happening in the flow of the Eustink section of Romans, okay? Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32 is what we might call the descent into, dep- into depravity. It's Paul just talking about the inherent sinfulness of, of human beings and how we just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And then the beginning of chapter 2, those first five verses, he deals with the moralist, the, the person who says, I'm really not that immoral, I'm, I'm a pretty moral guy, so that'll justify me before God. And Paul says, no. And then he goes on to deal with some more of that and, and, and talks about how the, laws are, the law of God is really written on all of our hearts so we do know the difference between good and evil and therefore we're, we're without excuse. And when we stand before God, he's not going to show any partiality. We're not going to stand before God and God's going to go, okay, all right, I, I was wrong. You're really wonderful and you're the exception. I'm going to let you in. He says no partiality. And then the last part of chapter 2, he really starts to go after the Jew who, who has been kind of left alone in his argument up until this point. But then he says, he says, listen now, do you guys, you Jews in the church at Rome, you guys think that because you have the law and you're the covenant people of God that you have your excuse, that you're the exception? He says, no. And then last week, that last paragraph of chapter 2, where he anticipates that the Jew will play their last card, the ace in the hole, the card they have up, in the, up their sleeve where they say, wait a minute though, we have circumcision. We have the mark of circumcision. That gets us in. And Paul says no. 
And so at this point, he's anticipating that the Jews are going to ask this question. Well, then what value is there to to circumcision? And, And what advantage is there to being a Jew? It's a legitimate question. And he answers it in a way that I think might surprise some of us. At this point, we might be thinking he would say, none. There is no advantage. But instead, he surprises us and he says, actually, there isn't much in every way. There is an advantage. He says, to begin with, you were given the oracles of God. Now, that's all he says about the advantage of being a Jew. He says, to begin with, you think there's going to be more. There's actually more in Romans chapter 9. Eventually, in about 10 years maybe, we'll get there and we'll see those other advantages. But he starts with the oracles of God. And when he says the oracles of God, here's what he's saying. You have the word of God, you have the revelation of God, and you have the covenant of God. All three of those things are wrapped up in that word, logia, the, the, the Greek word, which means word or message or truth. All three of those things. God has revealed himself to you as his chosen people. He's given you his covenant and he's given you his word. He's given you the law. And so you do have an advantage. But here's the problem. You never took advantage of the advantage. You have the advantage, but you never use the advantage for what it was intended for. It's like, it's like you're a hockey team and you have a healthy Wayne Gretzky when he was young and in his prime sitting on your bench, but you never put him on the ice. All right, I'm looking at some of your faces. Let me do something a little bit more relevant. You're a basketball team and you have a healthy LeBron James sitting on your bench and you never put him into the game. You have this great advantage, but you never take advantage of the advantage. One commentator tells this story. I really like this story. I thought it was a really good illustration. He says that there's a deserted island, not a deserted island, but an uncharted island. Of course, it's in the Pacific Ocean because all uncharted islands are in the Pacific Ocean. Uninhabitable, but there's two large groups of people there. Nobody knows they're there, and they need to get off the island. They're desperate to get off the island, and the only way off the island is to find this little footbridge, and and the, the entrance to the footbridge has been covered over with brush, and so it's really hard to find. But making it even worse is the fact that this island is in total, complete darkness, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time. So it's really hard to find this footbridge. Well, one group of people has been given a pen light to look for the bridge. One of those little lights that if you're lucky and you hold up your keys like six inches away, you might be able to tell your keys apart. Okay, they have that. And they're walking around pathetically looking for this bridge, hopelessly looking for this bridge. Then there's the other group, the other group, the Jews, and they have 12 monster trucks, four-wheel drive trucks, heavy equipment trucks, and on top of each of these trucks is this huge searchlight that oscillates and you can move it around and you can drive the truck around. So they have an advantage. They have a clear advantage, but here's the problem. Not only do they not share these huge searchlights with the other group of people that just has the pen light, but the Jews have decided to look for a needle in a haystack rather than for the footbridge. They have an advantage, but they refuse to use the advantage for that which it was uh, intended. So you stop to think about this and you go, what about today? Is there an advantage to being in church? Is there an advantage to going to Bible study? Is there an advantage to baptism? We talked about some of those things last week. Kind of sounds like maybe there isn't. Apart from Jesus, there certainly isn't. Well, yes, there is an advantage to those things. There's an advantage to going to church. There is an advantage to going to Bible study. Those things have an advantage, but maybe not in the way that you think they 
do. So, so here might be a comparison. Being in church, uh, the advantage that people have if they're in church is that they're going to hear the gospel proclaimed, the good news of Jesus Christ. They're going to hear the gospel proclaimed and they're going to hear the word of God taught. That's an advantage. We all get to hear truth. The problem is, is that it just, just hearing the truth doesn't save us. It doesn't help us. We have to act on it. We have to respond to it. We have to appropriate the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to our own lives. If we never do that, we have an advantage, but it's of no use to us because we've never taken advantage of the advantage. Many don't. We hear the word of God, we hear about Jesus, we hear the gospel, but we just don't do anything about it. Or worse, some of us will actually take the advantage and will try to use it for something that it was never intended for. I have a, I have a really good friend. He leads a pretty good-sized church in a, in a tough area, a church of three or 400 people. And, and uh, a, a while back, he noticed that there was this guy that started to come to the church, and he kind of got to know the guy, kind of an acquaintance of his. But the guy would come to the church, and he would he'd come to services on Sunday morning, but that's it, never did anything else, never read the Bible on his own, never appropriated the gospel to his life, but he would come to church every week. He did, he did the same thing that a lot of people did do uh, when they come to church. They kind of come, oh, that was interesting, and then they go on, and they're never transformed by, uh, by what they hear, never put it to use in their, in their lives. Well, then one Sunday morning, he noticed that this guy started bringing a woman with him. And, and he started talking to him, and he, and he found out that the woman wasn't his wife, but that they were sleeping together. So now he's like, well, I'm, I guess you could say I'm his pastor. I, 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 he attends my church. I, I'm going to have to sit down and have a conversation with him about this. So he sat down and had the conversation. He said, listen, you know, according to what Scripture says, marriage is the, is the appropriate context for sex. And, and I want to talk to you about that. So they had their little conversation. and Interesting thing, the guy went away and started reading the Bible. It was that conversation that got him to start reading the Bible. You know why he started reading the Bible? He was looking for verses and passages that he could rip out of their context and then use them in some way to justify that his sex outside of marriage was okay with God. And eventually he brought his argument to my friend who's the pastor and said, look, what about this? This is what it says. You're ripping that out of context. You know, if you look hard enough in Scripture, you can justify just about anything if you rip it out of its context. And, and, and so he had an advantage. He's going to church. He's hearing the gospel. He's hearing the truth proclaimed, but he never used it. He never used that advantage in a way that it was intended. So it's no advantage at all. So Paul's saying, yeah, you have an advantage, but it's not enough. You have to appropriate it. And then he anticipates and deals with a few more objections. Look at verses 3 and 4. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So Paul says, he's anticipating the person who says, all right, all right, Paul, uncle, I give up. I get it. We have been so desperately unfaithful. I get it. But, but, Paul, 
that level of unfaithfulness that we have engaged in, that you're describing, that, that unfaithfulness, that, that amount of sin that we've been engaging in, it's so high. Doesn't that in some way nullify or neutralize God? I mean, think about it, Paul. God chose us as his covenant people, and then we go out and we make a mess of it. We sin and we are unfaithful. Doesn't that somehow nullify the faithfulness of God? Doesn't that somehow neuter him? Doesn't that nullify his power? Doesn't that make him at fault as well? He picked us. He's God. He should have known better. Paul says, of course not. Faithlessness by anyone, Jew, Gentile, doesn't, doesn't matter. It does not and cannot nullify or neuter God or his faithfulness or his ability to sit as judge. You think about the Babylonian exile of the Jews and you realize that that didn't change God. He was perfect and faithful in the midst of that. He, he eventually restored the Jews and he judged the Babylonians. You, you think about Haman and the story of Esther when Haman sent down the edict to have all the Jews wiped out and God remained faithful in the midst of that. You, you think about Abraham, the guy that God first chose, the the father of the nation, how messed up was this guy? You read the story of Abraham and you realize that he was racked with sin and he was racked with faithlessness. There was that one time with Isaac where he demonstrated his faith in the midst of a very difficult situation. But the rest of the time, the guy was kind of a, he was not, he was not up to par. But God remained faithful to him in the midst of that. Then there's King David, greatest king in the history of Israel, described as a man after God's own heart. That guy fell miserably short time and time and time again, and yet God remained faithful to him. In fact, the, verse 4 is a quote of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a, is a psalm that, that uh, David wrote in, in the wake of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah, when he finally was confronted with the reality that he was wrong and God was right and he admits this to God, he says, you are the one. You can judge. You have the right to judge. Your judge is perfect. God saw the sin that David committed, yet he still remained faithful to him. David's sinfulness did not nullify God's faithfulness. God's justice is always just, David says. It's always true. Not us, though. We think we are. We think we're pretty good judges of things. We really do. In fact, I would argue that maybe one of the best evidences for the reality of the fall in Genesis 3, for the reality of original sin, is the fact that we think that we're better judges than God. I think that just... That, that delusion that we have is a very good demonstration of, of the problems that we have. Paul comes along and he says, listen, our unfaithfulness in no way changes the character of God. Our sin, while devastating, does not have the power to neuter God. Uh, we, God cannot be emasculated by our sin. That's essentially what he's saying here. And he goes into more objections, verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Paul's pointing out, listen, I'm conjuring up the arguments that humans like to come up with here. And he says, by no means. For then how could judge God judge the world? So this is a common objection. It's one that we hear often today. 
And, and people think it's a very clever objection, but the reality is, is that it's really very shallow. It's a shallow argument. It's the person who says something like this. Well, if my unfaithfulness results in God faith, God's faithfulness, if, if when I'm unfaithful, it's an opportunity for God to demonstrate that he is faithful, why would God's wrath come on me? I'm actually making God look good. I should be excused from wrath if I'm making him look good. My sin makes him look good. Why would he be mad at me? That makes no sense. I should not have to suffer the wrath of God if I'm making him look good with my sin. Well, Paul gets to, starts to get a little snippy at this point because the argument is really vapid. It's, it's just empty. Uh, Boyce, one of the commentators, claims that Paul shows genuine scorn for this line of reasoning. He's starting to get a little ticked. And, and Paul's response is simple but terse. He says, listen, if God can't judge your unrighteousness, then by that argument, he can't judge any evil whatsoever. Really? Do we want to believe in a God who can't judge any evil? Is that really going to work? We've got two problems with that. Number one, if God can't judge evil, then he's really not evil. I, I, I'm sorry, then he's really not God. That just logically follows. But here's the second part. If God can't judge evil, then he can't judge people when they sin against you. And that would be a problem for a lot of us. We have no place to go when sin is committed against us if there's a God who can't judge evil. God gives himself for us to be able to go to when we have had injustices done to us as well. The last two verses, and the objections get even more ridiculous as the commentators say, look at verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So they're saying, look, if our unrighteousness makes God look all the better, we should not only be exempt from God's wrath, but we should be exalted and affirmed in our sin. We should be rewarded for our sin. It's not just that we escape wrath, but we should get good stuff as a result. We should do more evil that good would reign. Uh, We're going to find this line of thinking also in Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about how uh, when people sin, it's an opportunity for God's grace to wash away that sin. And and the more sin there is, the more grace there is. But then he knows that somebody's going to say, well, if that's the case, then I should sin more and more and more so that God's grace will abound. And Paul says, no. If that's your understanding of how this works, then you really don't understand the gospel. If you're going to take the love and mercy and grace of God and the the sacrifice of His Son on the cross and you're going to use it as licentiousness, you don't understand the gospel. You should be responding to God in love because He's first loved us through His Son, as John would say in the letter of, of 1 John. Uh, here you go. By this logic, check this out. By this logic, we should leave here today and go set fires. Why? Because the fire department's going to come and put out the fires, and then that's going to make them look really good. They did a really good job putting out those fires, and then we can come out and say, hey, if we hadn't set the fires, they wouldn't look so good, so why don't you reward us? We should go on a crime wave. We should, we should break the law, because then when the police department comes and investigates and they, and they find us, Rather than arresting us, they're going to present us with a certificate of award. Thank you for breaking the law so that we look really good. It doesn't make any sense. Paul doesn't even answer these last two questions. I don't know if you noticed that. 
He doesn't even answer. He doesn't even bother to answer. Rather, he just says, you're going to get what you deserve, condemnation. Uh, Several scholars say that these last two questions are thoroughly juvenile, that, that, that they are juvenile negotiation. One scholar writes this, these arguments are self-evidently petulant in addition to being an attempt to distract from the real issue. So now what Paul does is he treats the objectors like little children. Uh, those of you who are parents uh, and your parents, uh, if you still have toddlers, doesn't quite count yet. I'm talking like maybe ages 4 to 10. I'm speaking from experience here. You notice how the closer you get to bedtime, the more ridiculous the negotiation to be able to stay up past the bedtime becomes. Have you ever noticed that? Okay? All right? At some point, what does the parent do? Just get ready for bed. We're done talking about it. That's what we do. (laughs) And you will do the same thing if you're single or you don't have children yet. You will do the same thing. At some point, you're just going to say, we're done, game over, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Not really, but we're done. We're not even going to attempt to do this anymore. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. The problem, though, is that this is exactly the the behavior of some adults when when it comes to who God is and who Jesus is and what the gospel is. We we just don't want to accept it. So we we just start coming up with question after question after question. And, and we try to distract from the real issues, the real issues, which is we're a sinner in need of a Savior. We're steeped in a life of sin that has no redemptive value but needs to be redeemed and it can only be redeemed through Jesus. But people struggle with that and they wrestle with that. I was there once. 27 years ago, I was there. I'm listening to the gospel every week and I'm going, I don't think so. I like my ideas much better. My ideas seem so much better, so much more reasonable. And so I brought questions and I, and I brought objections. And at some point, Jackie just looked at me and she said, okay, you'll figure it out. She realized I was just asking questions to, to distract because I just wanted to remain in disobedience. I liked my life of disobedience. It was, it was my way of saying, look, God's really not that big and I'm really not that small. I have a, I have a friend, who, really good friend, he does college ministry. I have a lot of friends who are in college ministry because I'm around colleges a lot and stuff and I teach there. Uh, his ministry is really to engage non-believing, non-Christian college students in discussion about faith. And he has these long-running conversations with people. And I remember he got into a conversation with a guy who was uh, pretty smart and, 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 and pretty solid in, 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 in his own be- set of beliefs. And, and he used to come to, with, to my friend with all kinds of questions and all kinds of objections. And essentially what he was saying is, listen, I, my faith system is Darwinism. I really believe in Darwin. I believe in evolution. I believe in natural selection. I believe in all of this stuff. And, and he would ask questions and my friend would patiently go to the scriptures every time and and argue from the text. And they went back and forth and back and forth for weeks. And finally, my friend looked at him and he said, you know, I've been showing you my text. What a, where's your texts? Let's see your text. So the guy said, okay. So he brings in his books and Darwin and Darwinism and all this stuff. And, and, and he hands them to my buddy. And my buddy takes them. And he's read a lot of these books. I read a lot of them too. But some of them he hadn't. So he dutifully took them. And he worked his way through them. And then he came back to the guy and he said, listen, you know, 
I'm really not that convinced. I, I, I find the arguments in here really shallow and, un, and unreasonable and, and unconvincing. And, and you realize that even Darwin, at the end of his life, he questioned the veracity of his theory. You understand that, don't you? This guy was blown away, absolutely stunned that my friend wasn't converted to his way of thinking. But then watch what happened. This, is, this was amazing. About five minutes after the start of that conversation, completely out of the blue, completely out of left field, the guy looks at my friend and he says, you have no right to tell me not to sleep with my girlfriend. And he was like, what? Where did that come from? But you see what he was doing. He just didn't want to deal with who God really is and the demands that God has on our lives because He is the perfect judge. He's a loving judge. He's a merciful judge. And He's filled with grace. And He's given us His Son as as a sacrifice for our sin. Nevertheless, He's real. And He's perfect. And He knows exactly what He's saying. And all the questions in the world, all the distractions in the world are not going to be enough to make us the, the exception. And that's the problem. We all think we're the exception. I think I'm the exception too. I'm convinced that I can talk my way out of any sin. And I know the argument, but, 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 but Frank, we're all unique. We're all snowflakes. Okay, yeah, we're all unique, just like everybody else. My, my, my buddy Tom, you, you know, he preached here a few weeks ago, Schrader. Now, he was, he, he was actually a part of the 1960s. I was alive during the 1960s, but I was too young to actually be a part of them. I just sort of watched about, I read about him and watched him a little. He was a part of the 60s. And he likes to tell the story about what it was like to be a young person, in the, a young adult in the 60s. He said, here you go, we wanted to declare to the rest of the world that we were different, that we were unique that, that, that there had been no generation like us before. And so we declared our independence and our difference by dressing alike, looking alike, wearing our hair alike, smelling alike, embracing the same political causes and political positions. So we were just like every other generation. We were looking to be the exception. But we are not the exception. And when we just continue to bring up these questions, that's... That's what a lot of us are doing. It's, it's, it's kind of like, have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? They got that one, I think it's called Whack-A-Mole, that one game where you know, the little things pop up and you hit them and then you hit one and three more pop up. That's what it's like having these conversations sometimes. And I get it and I understand. People are really wrestling with this. I get it. I did it too for years. I didn't like the answer that God had for me. But I was just looking for a way to hide from God simply trying to justify my sin. I'm looking to be that one exception. And we're not the exception. I, I was talking to a friend. I just an amazing, I have an amazing ability and capacity to justify my own sin. Even ridiculous little sins that you wouldn't think that are that important. I was talking to a friend and he was talking about what it's like to be a Christian citizen, a good Christian citizen. And he's listing all these things and I'm going, yeah, I do that and I do that. Yeah, I'm, I do that. And then he says, and you know what? Christians shouldn't speed. Oh. It's like, that's like the only gear I have. But I have an excuse. I'm a pastor and I'm really busy. Got to go to hospitals and save people. We have an excuse. We have a way of justifying. But Paul always gets the last word. 
And here's the thing that we all need to hear. He gets the last word in one of two ways. One of two ways. This is it. Paul says one of them at the end of verse 8. He says condemnation. That's one way that God will actually get the last word. It's, it's the bleakest, the darkest. It's the one that I wouldn't wish on anybody. But it's condemnation. That's when you die not knowing Jesus and your sin is separated from God, you from God. And according to the teaching of Scripture, including Jesus, it means that you're going to spend eternity in a place called hell, separated from God. That's one way that he gets the last word. Here's, how God gets the, uh, the, here's the other way that God gets the last word. He gets the last word by Jesus on the cross. By the one who knew no sin, becoming sin on our behalf and going to the cross and nailing that sin to the cross and paying for it there. Paul will say in a couple of weeks that it's a propitiation. It's a sacrifice of atonement for our sin. And in that process, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus as sin so that His wrath would not be poured out on us. And we get to trade our life of death and sin for Jesus on the cross and we gain out of that a life that's eternal with God. Redemption. Forgiveness. We have an advantage. But we must appropriate the advantage. Arcadia, for that, for us, that means... I think a bunch of things, but here are three big ones. Number one, we have the advantage of the Word of God. We do. We proclaim the Gospel and teach the Word every Sunday morning. We do it Wednesday night in the classes. We have the advantage of the Word of God. But we don't just hear it. We shouldn't just hear it. We need to respond to it, act on it, and appropriate it in our lives. We also have the advantage of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the tomb, forgiveness of sins, redemption, and eternal life through His life. Let's not make a mockery of the grace that He has given us by refusing to appropriate it in our lives. We also have the advantage of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. This is amazing. On the last night of Jesus' life, before he was betrayed by Judas, he's with all the disciples, we're told in John, and he's talking to them, and he's, he's really unpacking some wonderful, deep truths. And one of the things he says is, you know, I'm going to go away, but it's going to be better because I'm going to send to you my Holy Spirit. It's going to be better. Now, I'd be sitting there going, I don't get how that is. That you're leaving and it's going to be better? I don't get it. But Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be better because I'm sending you my Holy Spirit. My Holy Spirit is going to dwell within you. He's going to lead you, guide you, direct you. He's going to enable you to test the spirits as John says in 1 John. He's going to enable you to understand what the wisdom of God is, the truth of God is. He's going to dwell within you. That's an advantage. Let's take advantage of the advantage. The Gospel is the greatest and only advantage in the world. We should jump on it. We human beings, we have this amazing ability to justify our sin. Well, God has an even more amazing ability to justify us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's embrace Him. Let me pray. Sean's going to come up and lead us in our time of reflection. God, thank You for who You are. Thank You for Your Word and its truth. And thank You for what You've done for us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. 
God, I just pray that we would appropriate that in our lives. Not just, not just the first time. Not just the, the first time that we come to you in repentance and faith through your Son, but also every single day thereafter. Appropriate your gospel and your grace to our lives so that we could live for you, so that we could build the kingdom, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.